This morning we conclude our Easter preaching series, our Easter Tide preaching series that we have called Easter, What a Community Believes. We've been trying to hear these texts from John, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, as a collective experience. Scholars tell us that um, whoever edited and wrote these letters was representing a community. And so these are words not just from one person, the disciple John, but from a community. They express what a community believes. So we've tried to hear them communally, words of the community, for the community. As I read this morning, I want to invite you to remember that. Remember that the text we are hearing is a text written in and to and for and by a Christian community. The commentaries I consulted this week reminded me that it's easy for us to hear these texts as if these are absolute. We need to remember that these texts are written by a community that has already affirmed life in Jesus. Charles Kimball, in his book, When Religion Becomes Evil, reminds us that it's easy to take these texts and absolutize them. We have the only way. Jesus is the only way. Kimball reminds us that we need to learn to read texts like this as texts of devotion and commitment and love. These were the affirmations of a community who had known life in Jesus. We need not impugn anyone else's experience of faith by our own. So let's hear with an open mind this morning as we read. I want to tell you that preaching is an interesting and difficult thing, and trying to figure out what to speak from any given text can be interesting. Um, Amy and I go about this a little bit differently sometimes, and for me, usually there's an idea that jumps out at me. Sometimes that idea is focused around one single word rather than the whole text. And so this morning as I read, I want to invite you to hear the word, listen for the word testimony. Testimony. What does that mean, testimony? From 1 John, the fifth chapter, the final words of this epistle. If we receive human testimony, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony God has testified to the Son. Those who believe in the Son of God have the testimony in their hearts. The testimony in their hearts. Those who do not believe in God have made God a liar by not believing in the testimony God has given concerning the Son. And this is the testimony. God gave us eternal life. The Greek words mean life of the ages. This isn't something in the future, something that will be accomplished. Life of the ages is a way of talking about abundant life, fullness of life, life that is beyond any one moment in time. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is the testimony of the church. And the epilogue, sort of a summation of the whole letter, the writer says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not something you will have, not something you can have, something you do have, right now. Is that your testimony? 
You've heard the ancient story. I would not be the first commentator to suggest that we are living at a crossroads of time. What if it is one of the crossroads of time? All time. You know, there are those decisive moments in human history, those moments when historians look back 50 years, 100 years, 500 years later and say something happened at that moment of time. 
What if the future actually depends on how we navigate this very difficult moment? The future of our present reality, the future of all future realities, the future of the church, the future of God. What if we are living through one of the crossroads of human history? Are we up to the challenge? I was four years old in the tumultuous year of 1968. The Tet Offensive marked a turning point in the war in Vietnam, and 500 civilians were killed in the now infamous My Lai Massacre. That year, Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated within a few months of each other. There were student anti-war protests all over the world, and the Student Democratic Society and the Black Panthers were met by police violence at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. That iconic photo of Tommy Smith and John Carlos was taken at the Summer Olympics in Mexico City, heads bowed, black glove fists raised in the air, a protest against racial injustice. I was four years old. I don't remember much of that. Historians say it was one of the nation's toughest years. It sounds like we haven't actually learned all that much in 53 years. Historians also suggest the last few years rival 1968 and maybe the years surrounding the Civil War as among the most difficult this country has ever faced. To racial protest and police violence and political chaos and climate change add nearly 600,000 deaths due to the coronavirus and pandemic craziness that has accelerated the decline of the church an increase in secularism that is eclipsing God from many lives. Maybe this moment really is one of the crossroads of all time. Are we up to the challenge? Robert Wright is a New York Times best-selling author who writes about science and politics, history and religion. His book called Non-Zero is a kind of tour through human history, looking through the lens of zero-sum game theory. Not as hard as it sounds, it's just the idea that in every conflict there is one winner and one loser. It's all or nothing. To the victor go the spoils, to the loser, nothing. That's zero-sum game theory. Wright says the history of human development is the achingly slow discovery of the non-zero-sum game. Now, if you're old enough, you may remember Matthew Broderick's 1983 movie called War Games. Control of the nuclear arsenal had been placed under the direction of a supercomputer, which was accidentally accessed by a high school hacker played by Broderick. Before realizing what this computer was he had hacked into, Broderick has initiated a scenario that is interpreted by the supercomputer as a threat from the Soviet Union. The computer initiates the launch sequence for full-scale nuclear assault. Tension mounts because there's no way to stop the computer Except in a fit of genius, the brash high schooler asked the computer to play a series of tic-tac-toe games, which begin running in, a, in an increasingly frantic pace. 
Seconds before the computer is to launch what would be mutually assured destruction, the computer recognizes the futility of playing tic-tac-toe. There's really no winner. It's just all random in tic-tac-toe and thermonuclear war. And the computer freezes, declaring in all caps, WINNER, NONE. In this movie, that was too close to reality, teaching a computer the non-zero-sum game saved the planet. There is no way to win at a game of nuclear war. There are only losers. In non-zero, Robert Wright says, in essence, this is really all that can save the human race, learning the non-zero-sum game. In the complex game that is life on a beautifully intricately evolving planet, excuse me, there are not winners and losers. It's either lose-lose or win-win. We're all in this together. Life is always non-zero. Either we learn to get along, to respect one another, to love Even our enemies, as Jesus boldly suggested, either that or based on the selfish quest of the zero-sum victory, our mutually assured destruction is virtually guaranteed. In non-zero, Wright admits to being theologically agnostic, despite having been raised in a Southern Baptist church in the heart of Texas. But his skepticism offers a glimmer of hope Near the end of the book, in a chapter he entitles, You Call This a God? Right sounds a little bit to me like a preacher. He says, It may literally be within the power of our species to swing nature's moral scales decisively in the direction of good. Maybe it's up to us, Having inherited only the most ambiguous evidence of divinity, maybe it's up to us to construct clearer evidence in the future. Maybe history is not so much the product of divinity as the realization of divinity, assuming our species is up to the challenge. Assuming our species is up to the challenge. Robert Wright, the religious skeptic, acknowledges that if there is anything called divinity in the world, maybe it is up to us to construct the evidence, to realize God into meaningful existence in a 21st century world. His idea is philosophical, but there's a very practical point To paraphrase, he says, some thinkers have argued that maybe God isn't responsible for history, standing outside of time and space, orchestrating everything, the man upstairs controlling all things. Maybe there is God, but only as God comes into being through our own growth and development. Just as Christians say Jesus was the incarnation of God, God among us, maybe that's our calling. Each of us called to actualize a little divinity into reality, 
to construct the evidence by our own testimony. Now, if that sounds radical, unorthodox, let me say it another way, a way that makes it onto bumper stickers and into Christian contemporary music. We are God's hands and feet in the world. You're the only Jesus some people will ever see. Have you heard that one? If people are going to know God, we are going to have to show God. Construct the evidence. Let divinity be realized through our own testimony. Testimony of words and a testimony of faith lived in our own lives. If we're up to the challenge. Now, the only thing some people know of God is what they know from people who treat God like some jealous tribal deity, the master of the zero-sum game. For so many people, God and faith, which just sounds like trying to control God for our own benefit, for so many people, faith and God is about power. It's about conquering and winning You've heard that language. It even makes it into our hymnody. The selfishness of being right rather than the mutuality of relationship. It's about what's mine, even if it means you don't get any. It's about legalism of two ways, win and lose, right and wrong, black and white, orthodox and heresy, Christianity and anything else. The only image of God that much of the world knows is wrapped around that kind of zero-sum logic. But this is not the God Jesus taught us about. Before anyone ever heard of game theory, Jesus understood that life is non-zero-sum. As children of God, when you lose, I do too. So Jesus says, love the enemy, turn the other cheek, care for the least of these, even if it costs you. The last will be first, the first will be last. To whom much is given, much more will be demanded. These are not the rules of the zero-sum game. Grace, justice, the sacrificial love of Jesus are not zero-sum. Jesus did not defeat the Romans or take down the Jewish religious hierarchy. He died in their control with outstretched hands, the sure marks of defeat by a worldly power. And in those hands, Jesus gave up his life to teach us a better way. Love, not power. Win-win, not win-lose. I'm reading a new book called Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. Without speaking specifically to the church, Adam Grant is offering us an invitation, a recipe not just to survive, but to thrive in a post-pandemic world if we are up to the challenge. He says most people live like preachers or prosecutors or politicians. I'm trying not to take that personally. 
preachers defensively protecting sacred ideas, prosecutors angrily challenging any different ideas, politicians selfishly campaigning to sell my ideas. Most of us live as preachers, politicians, or prosecutors. He says we need to learn to live like scientists, questioning everything, thinking, testing, trying, rethinking, even our most sacredly held ideas. Now, Grant isn't talking about religious ideas, but our sacredly held ideas in science and politics and sports and all of life. But for the church, as history has taught us, even our actual sacred ideas need to be questioned. Are we willing to rethink in this decisive moment? To rethink church, what it looks like, how it acts, what's important about church for us and for the world? Are we bold enough to rethink faith what it means and how it functions? And do we have enough faith to rethink God? Who is God? What is God? Is God the greatest power in the world? The ultimate justification of the zero-sum game? The power claimed in the divine right of kings that justified domination and violence in the name of God. The power claimed by abusive husbands and political parties and religious traditions giving some Christians the right to claim an exclusive hold on truth. Or is God something different than that kind of power altogether? Are we courageous enough to see the world in the eyes of the skeptics and daringly ask, is there God in this world? Maybe Robert Wright is correct and history is waiting on us to be the testimony of God in the world, the proof, the realization of divinity in history. I believe the world is aching for someone to daringly construct the evidence for a non-zero-sum God, a divinity who does not dominate with violence and defensively demand to be right, who does not need the stamp of approval of any political party, who will not be limited by any one religious claim to truth, I believe the world is aching for a God who only claims the win-win of sacrificial love. I believe unless we learn the love of Jesus, a willingness to die for one another, to find life only by giving it away, that we may be destined to our own mutually assured destruction. But are we up to the challenge? We may be living in one of the crossroads of all time, the future of the church, the future of faith, the future of God may quite literally be up to us to determine by our own living testimony. Maybe it's time for the church to rethink all of it and to give the world a non-zero-sum faith in the God of Jesus. 
Are we up to the challenge? What is your testimony? May it be so. Amen.